Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tim, for your prayer, if not for the preceding comments. <laughs> <laughs> so, great to be here with you this morning. And um, I've got actually two opening questions. I want you just to discuss briefly uh, where you are with the people around you, okay? So, the first question, is the world a better place than 10 years ago? And secondly, do you worry about the future, whether for the world, for the UK, or for yourselves? Okay, a few minutes to do that. Be honest, see what you come up with, and then we'll gather back together. Okay. And he said, put your hand into the hand of God. That should be better than a known way and a light for your path. Okay, was that fun? Can you hear me? Yes. Can you hear me now? Yes. Good. Excellent. So let's have a quick show of hands. Who said the world is not a better place than 10 years ago? Not a, right, this is not a better place. Who thought it was a better place? Few, okay. Who couldn't decide? There we go. So, interesting spread there. Probably the negative view slightly uh, more widely held than the other. Now, what about worry? Who worries about the future? Okay, quite a show of hands. I won't ask you whether that's for the world or for the UK or for yourselves, but I think we'd want to acknowledge that whether we ourselves are worried, plenty of people are. Is that fair to say? Yeah, we're in that sort of time today. And... Um, what are some of the reasons why people worry? Well, I just brainstormed a few of them myself, and for me, they fall into two major categories. The first is the fact that life is harder. The pay squeeze has been uh, spoken about and written about in the last few days, hasn't it? Wages don't look like going up anytime soon, probably not for the next five years. Families, we're told, particularly will struggle to make ends meet in this country. There are poor prospects for young people, relatively speaking, um, as very uh, few opportunities um, seem to be available to them. Youth anxiety and depression, only partly related to that, has shot through the roof, actually, across Europe. There's been an epidemic of suicides, I'm told. And the second category, I think, is this. The world is less stable than it was. Do you agree? 
Yeah, okay, so the migrant crisis continues. Terrorism remains a threat, especially in France, but it could come back here. Libya, Syria, Iraq remain in turmoil. Vladimir Putin is in charge of one military superpower, and Donald Trump is now in charge of the other. Thank goodness they're such good friends. (laughs) All we need to do is elect Nigel Farage as our next prime minister, and we'll all be one big happy family. There we go. (laughs) That's lightened the mood, right. (laughs) But more seriously, what do we actually have in terms of harmony and unity? Let's be honest, we have a disunited America. I read last week, actually, a few days ago, that Donald Trump has only left Trump Tower twice since he's been elected because there's so many protesters out on the street, he'd rather stay in there the whole time. That is the state of America, the leading Christian nation in the world the one that's helped protect the world. It's worrying times. America's disunited, but I think it's also fair to say that perhaps more than for decades, we've got a disunited Europe and the UK as well. We want to leave Europe and Scotland wants to leave us. And it's a problem, plagued with difficulties. How do we respond to that? Well, I want to highlight actually three news stories just in the last couple of weeks that Tim and I, as we were preparing for this service, felt particularly concerned about. So the first is here on the screen now. Uh, This is the reaction of certain tabloid newspapers to uh, the High Court making a judgment based on legal precedent, which... uh, Perhaps others might have taken a different decision, but they were following legal precedent. And we had this onslaught on them, enemies of the people. Who who do they think they are? We're we're, we're trying to turn against all of our um, established authorities. And so many people were worried about that. What does that say about us as a nation? It was a level of vitriol that I'm not sure we've ever seen in this country. Certainly not in my lifetime. Here's another story that came up. When Prince... Poor Prince Harry shared his absolute despair and devastation at the online and the Sun newspaper's reaction to the emergence of his relationship with uh, Meghan Merkel. It just showed, didn't it, that there are so many nasty people out there now. And as a, a public figure, you are not treated kindly anymore. It's certainly very unpleasant what gets put on social media uh, so often these days. And here's uh, the third Facebook says, don't blame us for Trump. But why did they have to issue a statement about that? Because there was a lot of analysis about how in America, particularly, but also in this country now, so many people get their news from Facebook. Now, you might think, well, there's no problem with that. Except what Facebook does is, based on your previous reading preferences, it only shows you stories written by people or from a perspective that it knows you already agree with. And actually, with younger people particularly, that means there's a whole generation who are only reading things that reinforce the view they already have. Hardly something that's going to encourage balanced, considered debate. That's what's happening today. And you've even got news channels, whether it's Fox News or whatever, who are taking such a perspective that the people who watch the news thinking that it's impartial actually are being heavily skewed in one direction or another. And what has that done to us as a nation and particularly to America as a nation? Well, I think, and Tim thinks, that it's led to the situation where we've stopped listening to each other, where we're getting divided into increasingly polarised extremes, only fueling each other's anger with the other. 
And it has to raise the question too, do we no longer value decency, respect and truth? Does Donald Trump's election, for example, signal that these are no longer important? So it's in the context of these issues that I want to speak about our Bible reading now. Now, does this passage have anything to say about division? Does it have anything to say about anxiety and gloom about the future? And does it have anything to say about goodness and truth? For that's what we're thinking about today within the overall theme of peace. So I'd like to invite Ian to come and bring us our Bible reading now, and then I'll try and unpack it and show what light it sheds on the things that we're thinking about today. The reading can be found on page 1180 of the Pew Bibles. It's Philippians 4, verses 2 to 9. I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Sintish, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's a great passage, isn't it? So what I want to do today is briefly draw out three things we can take from it to guide us in how we should live as Christians in today's world. And the first is this. We need to be a peacemaker. But that's certainly the emphasis, isn't it, of those opening verses uh, from that passage. And I was really struck by a number of things from verse 2 and 3. Paul pleads for peace. He feels the need to name two specific individuals in a letter that's actually being read to a whole church. And he wants others to intervene. For he wants the whole church to care so much about unity that they make sure this falling out is fixed. In other words, Paul really, really cares about this. It's very important. And yet he also goes out of his way to commend the women as those who had contested at his side in the cause of the gospel and whose names, he assures us, are written in the book of life. So what can we learn from this? Well, it's that disagreements happen, even among the most committed of Christians. There will always be some differences of opinion. It's how we respond to them that matters. And the guiding principle has to be the one stated earlier in the letter, chapter 2, verse 2. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded 
having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. In other words, they were to put the interests of each other first and to put the interests of the Lord first. And for the sake of the church and the kingdom, they simply had to drop their quarrel. And so what can we learn from this? We can remember that what unites us is far greater and far more important than what divides us. Remember that it's an act of obedience to be united and that we have a responsibility for maintaining it, not just towards ourselves, but towards the whole church. That we need to be active peacemakers, taking it wherever it is found in the church. Because disunity mars the image of God in us Disunity hinders the mission of God through us. And disunity hinders the spiritual growth and joy in us. And staying united is one of our fundamental callings as a church. But that's the church-related application of that point. We can, though, apply it much more broadly to being peacemakers in our families. Is that a role you could adopt in our friendship groups, in our communities, in our places of work and study, in the council chamber, and then in the light of the things we thought about earlier, within our wider society. For one of the things Tim and I felt strongly burdened to address today is that issue that people are no longer listening to each other in the way they once did. And many instead choosing to demonize those on the other side of the argument as if they were simply stupid, ignorant, immoral, or worse. Let's take the Brexit issue, for example. Surrey Heath was split down the middle. We know that pretty well, 50 and a half and 49 and a half, I think it was. The country was split down the middle. Tim and I were split down the middle on it as it happens. But what we both agree on even more firmly is that the language, the anger, the scaremongering, the vitriol, the open distortion of facts from certain people on both sides was totally unhelpful and remains so. It reflects that selective reading of news and commentary via websites that filter out contrary views, where you only ever read or watch writers and commentators that you already agree with. It's what's been happening for many years in the US now, and we see the results of that in the divisions that they're experiencing. And it's now starting to happen here. It undermines everyone's confidence in politicians. It undermines everyone's confidence in our legal system, in academic study, in the wisdom of experts, in the benefits of experience, in the media itself, and ultimately, it weakens us as a nation. So what should we as Christians be thinking and saying then in our own political debate, and our own chat among our friends and colleagues? I think it's we should be acknowledging what's good or positive in the positions of those that we disagree with, being even-handed in the assessment of others, always seeking to learn from perspectives different to our own, especially of those who are less advantaged, which isn't the case for many of us. Recognising that people can have valid reasons for taking positions we don't agree with and finding out what they are. Just to give you an example, I'm not a Trump fan, I'll be honest, but the blue-collar Americans in areas of industrial decline desperately voted in some numbers for him because they thought he was the only one who could possibly change anything in their area with their economic difficulties. And we need to always keep in mind the bigger picture. And you know what? Actually, 
That's exactly what Paul does here in this passage. He doesn't take sides between Euodia and Syntyche, even though I'm sure he knew uh, perhaps who was more to blame. He acknowledges both of their commitment to the spread of the gospel, and yet he gently points out how the interests of that kingdom trump their own, no pun intended, affirming them in who they are before Christ, before challenging them to change. And we can do likewise. We can be salt and light in our culture, bringing wisdom and balance and sensitivity and gentleness to the debate that we are involved in. We can take encouragement from the fact that our leaders of two of our major political parties and our queen are actually Christians, called to represent and serve our nation in these very difficult times. So that's our first point. We are called to be peacemakers, and we can all do that. And boy, does our society need it. And here's our second point now. We are all called to pray. But that's what verses 6 and 7 tell us, don't they? In everything, by prayer and petition, present your request to God. Again, peace is the consequence. And it's something we're to do with everything, with confidence and thanksgiving. The Lord is near, Paul reminds us. He is listening. And as Paul makes clear elsewhere, We're not just to pray for ourselves, but for kings, queens, and all those in authority as well. And I think this is really encouraging because it helps us to tackle all of those causes of anxiety with which we began, potentially bringing two really significant things. First, a possible change in our circumstances because prayer changes things. I've certainly seen that in my own life on many occasions. I'm sure many of you have as well. And then secondly, a probable change in our perspective. Do not be anxious about anything, Paul says. And I don't think we should take that as a rebuke about when we do feel anxious, which we all do, let's be honest, at times. But rather it's an encouragement that when we pray and bring things to God and leave them with him, well, anxiety can and often will diminish. And we're to start our prayer with rejoicing, Rejoicing in all that we've been given through Jesus. Rejoicing that we have the freedom to pray and to bring our concerns before our Heavenly Father. And rejoicing that he loves us and longs to listen to us. We're to include thanksgiving too. And I I would suggest why not include thanksgiving for answered prayers in the past, which then will build your faith in answered prayers in the future. And then we're to present our request to God with a promise in verse 7 that the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That word for guard in Greek is a word drawn from the arena of conflict. And it's frequently used to refer to the action of a military garrison stationed inside a city, ensuring its well-being. And what does this peace refer to? Well, because it stands in contrast to anxiety in verse 6, I think it's an inner sense of contentment that is supernaturally, if you like, supplied by God. It transcends all understanding because the anticipated response to the persecution the Philippians were experiencing would be anxiety. But just as throughout this letter, Paul expects God to so break into that situation that he supplies an attitude in the face of adversity that few would otherwise have had. And he can do that in us too. 
Are you anxious here this morning? Are you fearful? God can give you peace. And we'd love to pray for you at the end of the service if you would appreciate someone claiming that peace for you as they intercede with you and for you after the service. You know, I've lost count of the number of times I've spoken to Christians going through difficulties or illnesses or bereavement who have turned to God in desperation in prayer, to be honest, but then have subsequently told me that they felt an overwhelming sense of peace. God does this. I'm sure many of us can testify to it. And yet I think we need to apply that experience in the time of crisis to the more mundane, everyday sort of anxiety that we experience more regularly. Because God wants to give us peace about those things too. They're not too small and insignificant for him. He can cope with every detail. He never tires of hearing from us. And he wants us to bring everything to him. So that includes not just our anxieties about ourselves or our loved ones, but our anxieties about our nation and our world as well. Pray for our country and its leaders, whether political, economic, cultural or spiritual, because we all need his help. Pray for the leaders of other countries too, especially those we're most worried about, the established superpowers we've mentioned, the US and Russia, but also emerging superpowers like China and India. And for countries ravaged by war and terrible food shortages like South Sudan, Syria, Iraq, Zimbabwe, as well as for our town and our church. We'll have a chance to do some of those things later on. Let's take that opportunity and ask God to guide us and inspire us as we do. So we're all called to pray. And now my third and final point. We're all called to shine as lights to the world, reflecting the light of Jesus, who John anticipated in the prologue to his gospel, saying, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. Beautiful words that are fitting on this first Sunday of Advent. Now, we've already thought about some of the problems of the world, and let's be honest, 2016 has not been a good year. But even in the midst of evil and tragedy, light can shine through. Here's a quote from another newspaper headline on the screen just a couple of days ago, and it's about uh, the announcement after the, uh, the court verdict and the imprisonment um, of the murder of Joe Cox, the MP killed this summer. Straight after that conviction was announced, her widowed husband said this immediately afterwards, it was an act driven by hatred, but instead it created an outpouring of love. It was an act designed to drive communities apart, but instead has brought them together. It was an act designed to silence a voice, but has instead allowed millions of others to hear it. And he later added how he pitied the murderer for all the hatred he had stored up in his heart. It was an astonishing, inspiring statement of hope, forgiveness and love that is such a contrast to the way people would have expected him to respond. And I think that's exactly the sort of example that Paul has in his mind when he writes in that final, those final verses of our passage, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things and not the other stuff. 
Look up. Look at those things that give you hope and joy. That assure you that goodness and love and truth will triumph. And it's not just Christians who are capable of such things. Of course not. I don't know what Brendan Cox believes. We should take encouragement and inspiration from goodness, truth, purity, wherever it's found. And I hope and pray that the memory of what Joe Cox lived for will go on speaking into the disillusionment with politics that many people, especially younger people, feel today. But what I do also know is that the ultimate source of whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, lovely, admirable, excellent or praiseworthy, is God through his Holy Spirit. For he made us in his image. And in a world and culture today where those things sometimes seem so absent, that light has never been more needed. And ultimately, the great hope of the Christian faith is this, found in the penultimate chapter of the Bible, Revelation 21. Now the dwelling of God is with man, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And Jesus said to all who will follow him in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people put a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And so I want to say to all of us today that actually the problems in the world and the relative absence of goodness, the absence of hope, the absence of truth, the absence of gentleness, the absence of compassion, the absence of love for people with different backgrounds or in a different situation to ourselves, it's actually an opportunity in a situation where increasingly number of people have walked away from God, but where an increasing number of them are feeling unsatisfied, pessimistic, joyless and anxious, We have something so positive to bring. As people's need for something more, something greater than themselves, something good, true, lovely, admirable, noble, inspiring, grows, so does the relevance, the appeal, and the absolute necessity of the hope, the peace, the wonder, the joy, the grace, the love, the mercy, and the goodness of the Christian faith. What do we need to do? We need to dare to be different. We need to practice what we preach. We need to get out there and walk the talk. And we need to allow God to fire us up. That we would shine brightly wherever we go. Where the light of God in us and the love of God in us is so obvious and so natural that people cannot help be drawn towards it. Whatever their preconceptions about the Christian faith might be. In other words, we need to live like those first disciples lived. In an era, let's remember, where their circumstances actually were far more difficult than our own. People like Paul, who in those final words of our passage said this, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice 
and the God of peace will be with you. That is our calling, brothers and sisters. We need to be peacemakers. We need to pray for peace. And we need to live lives that point people to the source of peace, our Heavenly Father and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. So are you up for it? Are you up for it? We need to be up for it. We've got to be up for it. And being up for it will give us that purpose and that fulfillment, that peace and that joy that we hope for, that we need. So I'm going to ask the band to come up now. And as they get ready to lead us in a a song of response, I just want to invite us all just to close our eyes and just invite the Holy Spirit just to apply whatever's been of him in what we've heard this morning into our hearts and our minds. So I'm just going to invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us now. Come Holy Spirit. Do you feel every person here gathered? Holy Spirit, would you just speak into our hearts now of whatever you're challenging us about and whatever you are prompting us to do as a response. So we just open ourselves up to you now. Would you speak to us now, we pray. of your spirit, we pray. Father, thank you that you have spoken. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you sent the true light to us and called us to be lights to the world. Would you make us peacemakers? Would you make us people of passionate prayer? And would you make us people of light who point everyone who sees us to the true light, your presence in us. Thank you, Father. Amen.